Uh, we're going to discuss the birthdays and anniversaries that have happened for the past two weeks because we had ice cream social last week. So starting July 31st to August 12th. So let's do this. Is there any written down? Oh, sweet. Uh, anyone have a birthday in the past two weeks? I see someone pointing over here. Your birthday? What day was your birthday? Lovely. How long have you known the Lord as your Savior? 29 years. Very nice. Happy birthday. Anyone else? Ski? Anniversary. Very nice. Uh, what day was that? Awesome. All right. And how many years? 50 years. Ooh, that's a big one. That's very nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. We can watch that. Yeah. Pastor Ray? Anniversary. 36? Very nice, very nice. Birthday. Birthday, what day was that? Last Monday? How long have you known the Lord's your Savior? A little while. Very nice, very nice. Gideon? Birthday? Today, nice. Uh, how long have you known the Lord's your Savior? 11 years? Nice. And Josh? Anniversary. anniversary, very nice, yeah. And Cody. Well, we've got to talk about your anniversary first. How many years? 28? Very nice, very nice. Uh, Levi? What day? I should know. What you say? Seventh? How long have you known the Lord's your Savior? 20 years, man. And I saw a hand? Anniversary on the first. How many? Very nice. So many anniversaries I have to remember. Oh, 24 years, okay. Anyone else? We want to hear the pastor agreeing with what you said starting with years. All right, any other hands? Very nice. How long have you known the Lord your Savior? Two years. Gotcha. Two years. Very nice. Um, all right. I'm very nervous because the anniversary part is hard. So I have to remember all of these. Hey, pastor, is it okay if I don't do that? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Let's sing to these wonderful people. Here we go. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday God bless you. Happy birthday anniversary to you. Uh, please stand for the scripture reading. Joshua 7, 1 through 5. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, 
took of the accursed thing, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is besides Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto them, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few. So there went up thither of the people about three thousand men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai, and the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men. For they chased them from before the gate even unto Shebarim, and smote them in the going down. Wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, let's continue to worship our God in song, singing, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. What gift of grace is Jesus, my song. 
We are Hymn of the Month, Jesus Christ the Righteous. going to be in um, Luke 18, 9 through 14. You want to turn there and follow along? And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day, and help uh, our hearts be open and responsive, and um, help me speak clearly, and help it not be me heard, but you, Lord. In your name, amen. So, I think Christians as a whole, in times of struggle, they really come together like no one else in the world. When there's a death, we all come and gather around that person, and we support each other, and we pray for each other. 
But then when the waters calm and the storm breaks, it really creates a path for you know, a very pervasive kind of evil. And I wanted to call our attention to this issue because it turns, you know, it turns our places of fellowship into like almost a pit of vipers. And this is a, a problem throughout the body, not just this body. This is pervasive in churches across America. And I, I, I like it. I call it fundamentalist virtue signaling. And you know, virtue signaling is the expressions or sentiments made to, um, you know, show your um, your moral superiority against another person's opinions or values. And I think I say this, you know, from firsthand experience, that I don't think there's a person in the world that loves gossip as much as your average Christian does. You know, Proverbs 18.8, the words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. When they did, you know, brain scans watching people gossip, brains release dopamine when you gossip. It's the same, it's the same um, chemical in your brain that's released from things like nicotine and other, other substances you use. So, you, you know, you can get addicted to it. And I break gossip down into two categories. There's the first one, which is false witnessing. And while it's still relevant, I don't think it's more of a, 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 a poignant problem, which is what I'm going to call malicious truthedness. And I want to express that I'm not advocating for the abetting of sin, but I do want to explain how Christians constantly and unceremoniously um, involve themselves in situations they necessarily shouldn't have been a part of in the first place to weaponize the sin of others. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that spreadeth, speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. And I know that in cases when there is an actual offense, we, we tend to have this habit of venting to other people. Well, in the case that something ha someone has offended us, we do not have the biblical right to vent to outside forces initially. Matthew 18, 15 through 18, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his faults between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, then thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. And I think the next um, important part of that is down at 21, which is, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him, till seven times. Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Now, Jesus isn't saying you only forgive someone 490 times. He's saying there is no limit. You don't count. So what does this forgiveness look like? Well, Colossians 3.13, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So we're supposed to forgive as Christ forgave. So how does Christ forgive? Jeremiah 31.34, 
and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So once an offense has been forgiven, it should end there. It should be no more. However, those involved directly, most of the time not, continue to stoke the flames. Proverbs 26, 20 through 21, where no wood is, there the fire goeth out. So where there is no talebearer, the strife ceaseth. As coals are to burning coals, and wood is to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. So why is it normal to act as a contentious man? And I think it's because we readily use the sin of others to bolster an illusion of our own perfection, which is confusing, at least to me, and I think a lot of others, because the Christian should know better than anyone else in, this, on, uh, in the world how wicked he is apart from the blood of Christ. You know, Owen showed me, and Owen showed me a meme. And despite how you may feel about internet culture, memes, while funny, can sometimes contain snippets of profound wisdom. And it was, uh, I reworded it due to lack of picture, but it's the great irony of the Christian rationale is this. We mock the idea that Judas would betray Jesus for a measly 30 pieces of silver when the sad reality is this. We betray Jesus every day for free. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1:14-16 And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That was Paul. If anyone, he doesn't, but if anyone had the right to claim that maybe works did anything, it would be Paul. And here's Paul saying, I'm the chief of sinners. Isaiah 64, 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So why call our attention to this problem? Well, one, because we don't treat it the same as other sins. We don't treat it the same as adultery or sexual immorality. We don't treat it the same. We let it, it's like white lie versus a real lie. It's a white sin in a lot of our churches. We don't address it the same way. The second reason is I think it's the reason that lots of churches don't have a college class and young believers aren't wanting to come as frequently as, as they ought or they, you know, they want to. They don't feel safe. I think it's why people are leaving church en masse. And an illustration I've been thinking of for a while, and I, I, you know, I've thought on this, and I've read over it. Who has seen The Hunchback of Notre Dame? Or read it, or whatever. Okay. So, at the end of the movie, Quasimodo has just saved Esmeralda from, you know, the pyre, and he, you know, climbs up to the top of the cathedral, and he, he says something. He, he declares something, something that he knows will ensure his safety in that instant. Does anyone remember what he says? He says sanctuary. Out of context, it doesn't necessarily make sense because sanctuary comes from the Latin sanctuarium, meaning a container of something holy. But in context, you find that from the 12th to 16th century, the time in which Victor Hugo wrote his story, those facing persecution could knock on the door of any church and claim sanctuary and be provided food, prayer, and most importantly, shelter. And now, in, today, in, in today's world, it's almost synonymous with the world shelter. 
Now, I'm not saying it should be a safe space in like the liberal sense or the worldly sense, but it should be a safe place, a place safe from the world's persecution. And I think we should still uphold this standard, a place of worship, yes, but also a place of shelter where there was nurturing of the physical, there should still be nurturing of the spirit. And it's my fear in churches across America that people are leaving famished. Uh, Brendan Manning is a, a, a Christian author, and he noted that the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what the unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. And the only thing I would add or change to that is that some of the time we're not even walking out the door. We're doing it in our place of worship, the place that we hold such a high standard and we are sinning in here and overlooking it. So why do we feel the impulse to elevate ourselves at the detriment of others? Well, some scholars I've read have said, you know, the idea that salvation can't be earned through works is unfathomable to man. You know, we've coined phrases in America like there's no such thing as a free lunch. But I, I, I think after reading some more, it's more primal and embedded in our being. And I'm going to read a long quote. It's from Tozer. He's a little wordy, okay? But it, it, if you haven't read him, you should, because he, he, he clarifies some things and he, and he connects some things that, you know, you, you may not have seen on your own. And it's, A more positive assertion of selfhood cannot be imagined than those words of God to Moses, I am that I am. Everything God is, everything that is God, is set forth in that unqualified declaration of independent being. Yet in God, self is not a sin, but the quintessence of all possible goodness, holiness, and truth. The natural man is a sinner because, and only because, he challenges God's selfhood in relation to his own. In all else he may willingly accept the sovereignty of God, but in his own life he rejects it. For him, God's dominion ends where his begins. For him, self becomes self. And in this, he unconsciously imitates Lucifer, that fallen son of the morning, who said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. Yet so subtle is self that scarcely anyone is conscious of its presence. Because man is born a rebel, he is unaware that he is one. His constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it at all, appears to him a perfectly normal thing. He is willing to share himself, sometimes even sacrifice himself, for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he may slide, he is still, in his own eyes, a king on a throne, and no one, not even God, will take that throne from him. And my goal is not to make anyone feel guilty or make anyone feel defensive, but there's a question that has been kind of probing my mind a little bit, and I've thought over it and thought over it and thought over it, and it's just been sitting there and won't leave. And it's one of those questions that only helps if the answer is honest. And it's that if a new believer who's on fire for the Lord came to our church, but they had lived an immoral past before they came to know the Lord, would we rejoice that someone lost had been found, or would we make sure that they could never escape their past, their past sins, the sins they could be committed, when the reality is all have fallen short of God? 
and I'm not you know, trying to make you feel guilty and know that I struggle a lot with this too, but it's one of those things where you, you, you read and you see and you talk with people who've left the church and it, it's just, it constantly breaks your heart. Dear Lord, um, thank you for today. Um, help us love one another as we ought. Um, help us keep our place of fellowship as a place of fellowship. Um, and help us encourage and nurture young Christians and new Christians the way we should so that they can grow in their walk. Help us not to be a hindrance to that. In your name, amen.
Good evening. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This week really works out because I've got to joke with David Klingeman all week that, you know, David, before we discuss what's going to happen, I get 10 minutes at the pulpit to say whatever I want to say, to share whatever story just pops into my head. I have so much power over David right now. It is really funny. I think I'm just going to stick to First Thessalonians, though. We're in chapter 5, verse 18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to come up here and talk about your scripture. And I pray that you'll be with me up here, because I know it doesn't much matter what I have to say. It really only matters what you have to say. And so we thank you for First Thessalonians 5.18. And you are good. I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but I am truly convinced that our God has a sense of humor. I really think that God works a lot with irony. And the moments and the people that you don't expect to have an impact on you are usually the ones God uses to convict. And usually the ones that... Uh, you, you really don't see coming out of left field. Let me share this uh, story with you. I have the privilege to work at a group home for teenage boys on the east side of Indianapolis. And usually, well, all of them come from the court system. Uh, they, at some point, had some kind of trauma, and the courts decided that it's better for them to live here rather than wherever they're coming from. And... So I started about two months ago. When I first arrived, the very first day, they were having a Bible study. And it took me by shock, because this is not a ministry, this is a, uh, a secular environment, but I walk in and they're having a Bible study. And I'm taken back, I'm actually a little ex- excited. And I get to meet the young man that's leading the Bible study, and he is very vocal about his faith. And I get so excited, and I... I had just worked at Good News Ministries where I got to talk about my faith all the time, and so here's this young man saying that he loves the Lord and that he, he wants to do this, and, and all I'm really thinking about is, oh man, I get giddy, right? I'm like, I can give him verses, I can be an encouragement, I know being a Christian is tough where he is, and, and it should be tough in this world, it should be a tough thing. And so really, I'm, I am just thinking about what I can do for this young man. And so I come into work one day, uh, start bright and early, 7 a.m., walking into the house, and he comes to me uh, before I really have a chance to sit down or, or do anything. He's like, Alex, God is good. I'm like, yeah, yeah, God is good. He's like, no, Alex, God is good today. Last night, my mom overdosed, and I took her to the hospital, and she had died for a brief time, and they were able to, to bring her back. And, of course, I'm taken back a little bit. I'm like, oh, wow. Uh, I just got to the group home. I don't know him very well. And I'm like, that's, that's, really, that's really a powerful story. And, and he's like, I'm just so blessed. God's been so good to me. Today is just such a good day. And the conviction falls on me almost right away of, 
here I was thinking so much about what I can do for him, when really right here standing in front of me was a young man that was right with God. He was so thankful and giving all the praise to God that that morning he was unmovable with God. I think about thankfulness, and I think sometimes there can be a delay, so that there can be a gap. This thing happens, we'll gripe and complain, and we'll get through it, and as long as we can see the good that came out of it, then yeah, we'll be thankful. But that's not, that's not what the scripture says, and that's not how this young man reacted. And when I have this opportunity to come up here and to, to talk to my church and you know, I've grown up here, and, and I've just grown to cherish it so much. I have to wonder, are we a thankful people? Is this a thankful church? And so real quickly, I don't have a, a whole lot of time. I'm going to give three facets, really more like three practices of being thankful that we can hopefully try to apply to our lives. And so the first one here, I'm going to call past thankfulness. And it's really as simple as it sounds. It's just looking into the past in your life and seeing what God has done and seeing how God has, has guided you, taken you know, step by step. You know, he opened this door that led to me meeting this person. And you know, hopefully as a Christian, as someone, you know, that's seeing how God has worked in your life. For me... That's how I know it's real. That's how I know this whole thing is real, that I can stand up here, is because I know what God has done for me. And so I'll, I'll challenge you to, to look into your life and look into the details. Try to look into the small things. The smallest you can find, the better. You might have heard it said, the devil's in the details. Well, God's there too. Right? We just need to look for him. We just got to find him. He's there. And so quickly, my second uh, point that I'm calling here is present thankfulness. That's just being thankful for the present, being thankful for where you are right now. Uh, Physically right now, we're in church. We can be thankful for that. Not everyone has a church that they go to on a Sunday night. Um, Has the people around you that God has put around you. And if we stop and we, and we look around and we see what God's doing now, we get to experience God. We get to be, just like that young man, unmovable in God's will. And so I want to back us up a little bit here, looking at Scripture to verse 16. It says, Rejoice evermore. Verse 17, Pray without ceasing. Verse 18, and everything give thanks. These are things that don't have a start and they don't have an end. These are things that we do. This is in the present. This is now. We're rejoicing now. We are praying now. We are being thankful in everything now. And just like looking in the past, really try to really try to look for those details now and what are the smallest things that God is doing because he's there and he's active 
But unless we're looking for it, we're just going to go on about our day without seeing it. And lastly, I have what I'm calling future thankfulness. Future thankfulness, I think that's the hardest one to find. I think that's something that we can't see exactly, and so it, it's harder to find, right? And I think it really just boils down to faith. Future thankfulness is having faith. Seeing what God can do, expecting God to do that, and then being thankful for it before it happens. Um, it, it kind of has a little bit of a risk because you don't know what God's going to do. Uh, I don't, you know, maybe it's, I don't know how I'm going to get my tithe this week and pay my bills. But Lord, you've been good to me and I know you're going to get me through. And I think about the future of Southeast. I think about this church. Right now, we're in a time of change. This is the first week without the Solaric family. I had to listen to Pastor Brett lead music this morning. (laughs) 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 Yeah. And in a moment of honesty... I'm not going to come to the pulpit and not be honest. I'm not quite to the excitement phase yet. Is that okay for me to say, Pastor, that I'm not exactly jumping out of my pew excited that Pastor Andrew's gone? But I'm preparing myself to be thankful. Because to be in God's will is to be thankful. And I think as a church... It starts at the individual level, but as a church, God, is, God has been good to us, and God is willing for us to really be something special. And I really believe that. But it's not unless we're there with God. It's not unless we're, we're unmovable with God. And so my challenge for you all tonight is, it really isn't me, it's, It's the scripture right here, verse 18. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for your Bible. I'm thankful for the scripture that you've given us. I'm thankful for verse 18. I'm thankful for you to to show us how we can be in your will, and be with you. Lord, I just pray that you'll, you'll be with us to guide us along the way, because nothing gets done without you. Nothing's going to happen at this church without you. And so, Lord, just, just be in our hearts and be in our minds that we can remember to stay thankful and, and to stay grounded in you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
is good to be back at Southeast Baptist Tabernacle behind a very familiar pulpit in front of very familiar people, hopefully filled with anticipation, or at least filled with something. And uh, hi, Mom, I miss you already, and you too, Dad, and and also Sophie. (laughs) Proverbs chapter number one, Proverbs chapter number one is our uh, text today. Look at Proverbs chapter 1. These are the words of God. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment, and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase learning. And a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels, to understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head and chains about Thy neck. Today, I want to preach about getting to know the book of Proverbs. Getting to know the book of Proverbs. Understand, um, firstly, Proverbs is a family book. It's written by a father and a mother to their son. Um, this teaches us that our relationship with God is not mere obedience to laws, like a citizen would render obedience to a king. Rather, it's obedience within the home of children with their loving father, of obeying his laws that are given from his heart. These aren't cold and um, unfeeling laws. These are laws from someone that we know. Now, no person in this room has ever met the Founding Fathers. Uh, I'm sure some of you have met you know, our congressmen or other politicians. I've never met uh, any of our congressmen or our lawmakers. And so my relationship to them is very cold and very cut and dry, you could say. But my relationship with God is very personal. When he gives a command... When he says, Jonathan, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he isn't a stranger. This is my Father telling me to love him. Amen. When Jesus tells me, this is the good shepherd who has given me his life, when he tells me, love me, I am his sheep, and I will say, yes, surely, yes. It is a um, warm obedience and a warm household to our loving Father. Now, these Proverbs were given to Israel to teach them. They're given to us to live in them, and they were given to Jesus to exemplify them. Now, what do I mean by that? Jesus, remember, as a young Jewish boy, he would have read these things. He would have learned them in his humanity. He would have learned them, and he would have obeyed them. Now, I'm speaking, strictly speaking, about his humanity. I'm not going to you know, deny his deity or take away anything like that. But at the same time, he was truly human. And when he read these things, he truly obeyed them as a man in our place. He knows what it's like to read these and to obey them. And when the Proverbs say, My son, give me thine heart, Jesus read that verse also. And he said, Yes, Father, you may have it again and again. You always had it, but here it is again and again. Because Jesus has always loved his Father. And we, in his example, should continually love the Father as well. This is a book, a family book, written by a father and mother to their son. 
but it's also the wisdom of kings. It's from a king to a future king. The men are to live as paragons of virtue. It's not just written to a, a child of unknown gender. It is from a father and a mother, primarily a father, to his son, to the next king of Israel, Rehoboam, and to us, a nation of royalty, of kings and priests with our God. And it's written primarily in this perspective to young men. Now you will ask, well, why? When the men are righteous, when the men are filled with the knowledge of God, when they are living strong and tall and humble and righteous before God, everything else will fall into place. God has made the man to lead. And when he's living that way, the godly ladies, they will follow. When the men are protecting and providing and doing what God has called them to do, the ladies will be protected because that's what they want out of godly men. It's by nature kingly. And it's written by a king, for the next king, Solomon and his son Rehoboam, written by the Father for the King of Kings, and written by the Lord Holy Spirit for us, a royal priesthood. These are written so that you will love being a Christian. These are written so that you will say, it's amazing, I love it, I love it being a Christian, I love it when I can go out into the world and know how to live my life. Because this is God's world. It's not the devil's world. It's not man's world. This is God's world. Amen, somebody. Amen. And he's given me his handbook, his means to dominate and be submissive to him in this life. It's not a, it's, God's giving us these things. A man that's diligent in his work, he shall not stand before mean men. He shall stand before kings. He's given you the best tools in this life. There is no treasure like the Word of God. And you have it every day, and you can open it, and you can be wiser than all the lost. You can be wiser than any uh, lost philosopher in history because you have this Word from God Himself. He wants you to love being His child and being a Christian. Notice what the Bible says in Proverbs 4, 6 now. Um, we'll start in verse 5, actually. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, Neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Many of us guys have experienced that bitter cup of a heartbreak from a girl. But I want you to know that Lady Wisdom, she will never break your heart. She will never stab you in the back. She will never betray your loyalty. And for you young men in here, pursue this lady. Find this lady. Make her your kinswoman, as he goes on to say. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee. She shall bring thee to honor when thou dost embrace her. She shall give to thine head an ornament of grace. A crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. If you're clothed in the wisdom of the Proverbs, in the wisdom of God, you shall receive a crown of glory. These are the Proverbs, uh, written by a father and the wisdom of kings. Now I need to get back to uh, Proverbs chapter number 1 as we go through it. Um, notice firstly, the giver of wisdom. Uh, verse number 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. This is a recurring theme that true wisdom only comes from God. Proverbs 4, 2, For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. We are not to go somewhere else to find the wisdom of God. They are found here in the scriptures. Now, you could technically go elsewhere for wisdom 
and even find it. There are common grace insights that you can gather from men like, say, Jordan Peterson or some other uh, famous figure. However, by nature of them being unsaved, unregenerate, it will inevitably come with sinful thinking. These are people who are not filled with the Spirit of God. These are people who do not know Jesus Christ and everything revealed in the Old and New Testaments. And so, by necessity, it's flawed. It's marred. There's something wrong in there somewhere. Uh, an illustration. Growing up, uh, my dad, he would grill, and he would grill quite often, especially in the summers, and that was one of the amazing things about you know, being my dad's son is that he would grill, and uh, his burgers were just always amazing. He would um, smoke them, and so they were big, and they were meaty, and amen. That's, just, that's, what, that's how you need meat to be, guys. It's big and meaty, and it's got that rich, smoky flavor, and let's go. I mean, I can chow down on those any time, any, any place, any time. They were just amazing, and it's what you want. But you could, you could go down the street, go to McDonald's, buy a quote-unquote burger, and it's technically meat, probably. <laughs> but, but why would you do that? Why would you go and get something that's just prepared mindlessly in like a corporate assembly line with no love when you could go to your father and have this wonderful, tasty, beautiful feast prepared from his heart, better than anything you could get anywhere else. Why would you go anywhere else? Why would you want anything else? Why would you consider anything else? There was no one like our God. There's no gift like a gift from the Father to His children. And it's found here. His wisdom is found here in the Proverbs. And He wants you to have this and delight in it. And you've tasted it for yourself, haven't you? If you so have tasted that the Lord is gracious and good. You know it if you have his fear, and that is the requirement of God. It's not enough to know about God. We must fear him. Notice, secondly, the requirement of wisdom in verse number 7 of chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. We often define the fear of the Lord as uh, reverential awe, and that is the best of definition that I am aware of. However, we could also understand it this way. The fear of the Lord is when he has your heart. The fear of the Lord is when he has your heart. One theologian said, um, I offer my heart to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. It's a very, we could say, dangerous thing to give your heart to God. But the picture is that my heart I give to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. Here it is. I can't be trusted with it. I, if, I, if I hold on to it, I'm going to just mess things up. I'm going to keep getting my heart broken. I'm going to keep damaging myself. I'm going to keep going astray. But here, Lord, you take it. Well, I'm still sensitive. Well, I'm still thinking straight. Take this, my heart. Promptly and sincerely, I give it to you because I can't be trusted with it. And you do it with full knowledge of who he is and what he will do because he's promised that there is suffering in this life. And when you give him your heart, you know full well he will do whatever he wants with that heart. And I can speak from personal experience, as all of you know, the Lord, he will send suffering your way. But I already gave him my heart, and I doubt he's going to uh, give it back. And I told him not to give it back anyway. So, and he has it, and he knows what he's doing with it. And when I give him my heart, 
I, I fear Him. I know Him. And I trust Him with everything. Whatever He wants to do with it. He can do whatever He wants. And this is what it means to fear Him. Lord, whatever You want. Just whatever You want. It's okay. Just give me the grace to bear it, to understand it. But just whatever You want, and I'll take it. But notice, uh, the fear of the Lord isn't everything. Um, obedience um, follows fear. It says it's the beginning of wisdom. There's more to wisdom than fear. But obedience must necessarily follow the fear of the Lord. In Jeremiah 32.20, the Bible reads, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. This is the power of God, especially of His Holy Spirit, that He puts in your heart His fear so that you won't turn aside. That's what He promised, that when His fear is in you, you won't turn aside anymore. Yes, you will not be perfect, but what he's saying here, it's not a promise of perfection. It's a declaration of direction. I got that from Jim Van Gelderen. And, and, and as he's saying this, this is his promise, that I, I will give you my spirit. I will put my fear in you, and you won't turn aside. And it will be amazing. It will be great. And my fear will be in you, and that will make the difference. That's the difference every single time. Does somebody fear the Lord or not? Compare this. All of you have been in school before, and you saw those individuals who were just... Too cool for school. Sat in the back, just like this all the time. It's like, yeah, whatever. It's nonstop. Never wanted to participate in anything. And on the other hand, you have another kid who is just bright-eyed and he wants to serve the Lord. He says, Lord, I want to know what you have to say in your word. I'm not smart or anything like that, but I want to just know you. Put both of them in front of the same book. One of them, they'll both read the exact same words. But one of them will walk away, just whatever. And the other one will be changed. And he will continue to change because he fears the Lord and he will get wisdom and instruction. And today, if you do not fear the Lord, you will not receive his instruction. Every time, if you don't fear him, every single time, you will hate his words because you are in rebellion against God. Any individual who does not fear the Lord, he will hate his words. That's why you need the fear of the Lord. That's why you need the spirit of holy God to change your heart. Notice thirdly, the blessing of wisdom. Verse number 8, My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head, and chains about thy neck. To put it another way, wisdom is beautiful and delightful. There's nothing like having this wisdom. Um, I need to make a contrast here. I used to work at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. And there was a variety of different art styles and art galleries in the museum. And my favorite was the, basically the European gallery, where there was all sorts of classical works in there. There was a huge picture of, I think, actually King James, or one of the kings of England. And there was all sorts of other paintings and works of art as well. There's a, uh, one of those fancy water fountains, and it's just made of stone. And there's paintings of landscapes and knights and cathedrals, and kings, and queens, and royalty, and just beautiful things. It's objectively so. You can't deny that these things are beautiful. Then you go to the fourth floor, the dreaded modern art section, and you see a banana taped to the wall. <laughs> One of these is not like the other. And it gets sold for a million dollars. And it's like, you've got to be kidding me. I could have done that. And I can barely draw stick figures. One of these is not like the other. The wisdom of God 
is beautiful. It is made of stone, and it is solid, and you can depend upon it. The other is, like, what's even going on here? Who comes up with this stuff? That's the difference between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of this world. This is God's promise, that it's worth it to be wise, to receive his instruction from this book. And this is wisdom's cry. The opening verses of Proverbs chapter 8. Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice. She standeth in the top of high places, by the way in the places of the paths. She crieth at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming in at the doors. Unto you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of man. O ye simple, understand wisdom, and ye fools. Be ye of an understanding heart. Hear, listen, for I will speak of excellent things, and the opening of my lips shall be right things, for my mouth shall speak truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing forward or perverse in them. To any of you, who need Christ, both saved and otherwise. This is wisdom's cry. She's out in the open. She doesn't need to hide. She's not ashamed of anything, and neither will you be if you take hold of wisdom. She says, come on. Come, I'm right here. Come, receive wisdom. Receive Christ. Receive His fear. Receive everything that Christ has to offer, and you will find yourself transformed by the power of holy, almighty God. These, is your, these are your two choices before you. Wisdom and righteousness or folly and death. Proverbs 8, 35 and 36. For whoso findeth me, findeth life, and shall obtain favor of the Lord. But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. Will you stand with me in prayer, please? Our Father and our God, I do pray that we would receive the wisdom that is from on high. We know that of ourselves we will go astray, but in you is safety, in you is beauty and a crown of glory if we would but serve you and grab hold of all these things. Lord, I pray you would seal these words to our hearts of thankfulness and a hatred of gossip and evil words. Lord, just seal our hearts by your holy holiness and let us know you, Father. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, guys. Well, we've had some great challenges. Let's have heads bowed and eyes closed, please, for just a moment. So a challenge about our tongues and watching our tongues and not letting them be used for gossip, a challenge about thankfulness and uh, thankful past, present, and future, and a challenge about wisdom and how we would be willing to give our lives, our hearts to God in a way that would uh, allow him to change us. So as you've been challenged today, we're going to sing, what should we sing, Pastor Brett? We're going to sing a song, so you're going to pick it. And so uh, uh, we're going to sing, and we'll allow you to uh, do business with the Lord as he has spoken to your hearts. And we'll get ourselves ready here. Pardon? I surrender all. I surrender all. We'll sing I surrender all together. And as the Lord has spoken to your heart, the altar is open to you. You step out. Let the Lord have his way, would you? Ready, you step on out, let the Lord have his way.
Father, thank you for your truth that has gone forth tonight so powerfully. I pray that you would work in each and every one of our hearts and lives. Give us a desire to love you more, to know you more, a willingness to be thankful, a willingness to be honest about our tongues and to, to uh, speak your truth, uh, letting your word come forth from us. And God, may we trust you with our hearts and with our lives. May we seek wisdom. And we will thank and praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What a joy it is to be in a church that has a group of college students that can pull off a service like this one. Wow, that was just phenomenal, guys and gals. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. We're going to uh, let you dismiss and take a break for a moment. Then we'll come back in here, let's say, in three minutes. So it's 7.09, so 7.12. Uh, we'll get back in here so we can get you out of here in a timely fashion. And uh, we will deal with uh, the issue before us with David Klingeman, uh, trying to see if we'll take him on for, uh, as a part-time help, uh, interim youth director, while we're absent Pastor Andrew, as we've been reminded so eloquently today uh, that we're without him. You did a good job, Pastor Brad. I don't care what anybody else says this morning. <laughs> All right, the Lord bless you, keep it, make his face shine upon you, give you peace. God bless you, you're dismissed.